Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I know. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. Hello, my name is Brenda Hernandez. I am excited to welcome you to the Allied Media Project Spring Speaker Series Bloom and today's event, Undocumented and Unafraid. We're so grateful to share this virtual space with you and our guests, Patrice Lawrence, Jenny Gutierrez, and Ergo. Give them your kudos and love in the chat. Allied Media Projects has been cultivating media for liberation for over 20 years. We'd like to take a minute to acknowledge and uplift the rich history of Detroit, the city we call home. Detroit sits on Anishinaabe land and that of other indigenous people. It is the largest majority black city in the nation with a long legacy of African diasporic global contributions. It was also once a stop on the Underground Railroad known by its code name, Midnight. Detroit is also the city with the largest concentration of Arab Americans. It's a border city with Canada and has a growing Latinx community and a rich legacy of Asian American communities and movements. And now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming and Patrice Lawrence, Johnny Zed Gutierrez, four, and Ergo. Three, two, one. Thank you so much, Brenda. I am Damon, Damon Williams of Ergo. Thank you, Ally Media Projects, for having us. And we are so excited to have this conversation, undocumented and unafraid. Also want to shout out my uh, partner in this work and co-host, Daniel Kisslinger. What's up, Kiss? Hey, Dame. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I am so grateful and feel privileged uh, that we are here to be having these conversations with these amazing people. Um, and so we're going to get right to it in, in the tradition that we always do in our work with Ergo. Two-part question. So in this time, whether that's this day, this hour, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? And Jenna said, we're going we're gonna to hear from you first, if you put Yes, thank you, Damon. It's an honor to have this conversation with all of you here today. Uh, there's been transitions throughout my life, but I will say over the last four years, it's been really um, heavy at some points. And finally, I am moving in a direction where I am finding some sort of comfort and finding support in different ways, uh, stability, right, that many of us don't have. So to be able to have all those things aligning as we are having this conversation and grounding myself in, in the shifts that will come ahead, I'm just like, it's a blessing to be able to feel these uh, transitions in my life. Mm. Ashe. And Patrice, for you in this time, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? How am I treating the world? Well, today's Eid, so Eid Mubarak um, to all who are celebrating. And in a way, it's kind of hard to feel joy when we're in the middle of what has really been a very, very tough month and a very tough past few days. So how the world is treating me 
is continuing to see our people be exploited, be pushed out of their homes, be, you know, really treated terribly. Um, but yet having to force myself and our community having to find joy nevertheless. So trying to hit back some of that oppression with some good old fashioned kickback. Mm. Yeah, shout out to the shout out to the kickback. So be, before we jump into to some of the specifics of what we wanted to ask about, we wanted to kind of set the stage a little bit because I think, you know, conversations around immigration and the experience of undocumented people uh, in this country is something that's talked about a lot. There's a lot of noise, um, but very rarely discussed, you know, in meaningful ways, especially for people who are doing movement work, because the premises of those loudest conversations aren't being challenged. Um, so what do we need to make sure we center in order to really have this conversation in a way that's meaningful and to the root? I think for the second part of the questions, how I'm, you know, I'm treating the world, part of it is for me, it's through organizing, right? And if we really want to see change, if we really want to end transphobia, homophobia, racism, we have to go to the root. And I think in the last five years that I have been organizing directly with communities impacted and myself been impacted in some way, I think that's where I have been able to find right, the solutions that communities need. Otherwise, we'll still continue to make some changes, but not really solve the problem. And for us, uh, the demands are very clear from the community, especially undocumented trans women who faced so much violence, who faced so much discrimination, and at times rejection, even from their loved ones, right, who are supposed to provide uh, loving care and, and take care of them and guide them through the world. It's heavy work. It's not easy to do. There are moments when you want to just move on and do something else, basically give up, right? But I don't think that is a solution that I've seen. I've seen people really taking breaks if they need to, but they come back with more energy, with a more clear direction in what is that they want to do. So for me, how I'm turning the world is just bringing communities together, having conversations with my family about my own identity, really challenging them. And they challenge me into what is it that if we gained some privilege, right? What is it that other communities are struggling and don't have what we have? So that is the way for the work that I'm doing, for the vision that we have ahead, that we want to make sure that no one is mistreated, that no one loses their life in detention, in prisons, for whatever it is that they did. It's it's unacceptable that people are dying at the hands of the state when they're supposed to be protected. So through lifting a lot of, you know, the 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 heavy work through centering the voices of people who are directly in by different intersecting identities is, is the way to go forward. And sometimes those positions are very difficult. Sometimes those positions are really not welcomed at the beginning, but as we continue to push and uplift more voices, then we can start seeing how those demands can really become a reality. It's beautiful. So what I'm, what I'm hearing is the centering of the demands that are coming from the people who are doing the work 
and an understanding of the ways that the personal and intimate relationships can be a space of that political work. Sound right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How about for you, Patrice? What do we need to make sure we center in, in order to have this conversation in a useful and grounded way? I think just um, remembrance that people who are undocumented come from all different backgrounds. So it's really best to not assume anyone can be undocumented. Anyone. It's just a word. It's just a flaw in a system. And some may say it's a design of a system. Um, And I think also just to like, listen, we have to listen to folks when we talk about our pain, when we talk about the words that we choose for ourselves and the way that we choose to describe what we're going through. If we start there, open and listening, you got it. That's beautiful. So that's such a a, a great grounding for us to to continue this conversation, I want to shout out, you know, all the folks who are watching on the live stream and then for the people uh, for the months and years listening to this podcast. Uh, we're really grateful for you to being here, bearing witness to this conversation. And even this is a small step of commitment into growing further in, you know, this collective push for justice and liberation. And so with those grounding frameworks, the world is so tough as we, we opened up with, but one of the things in movement that I've been really excited by in the last couple of years is I feel like I'm experiencing observing a greater emphasis on Black and Indigenous solidarity and Black and Brown solidarity and movements in the street um, on different issues, whether it's state violence, whether it is within the economy. And it's important, I think, when we're talking about these solidarity um, that we center immigration and the experience of undocumented people uh, to make sure that we have the most holistic or the most to the root radical conversation. Um, And so centering particularly maybe borderless experiences or solutions that are maybe outside of like hyper-nationalist structures, how can we learn to have more in-depth conversation and build more space for solidarity? That is, if we center this notion of citizenship and border in a way that uproots uh, some of the oppressive norms that have been expanding, it seems. I think one is just a reminder that citizenship is not freedom. I'll say it again, citizenship is not freedom. And we know that especially as Black folks, right? Because if it was, then we wouldn't have to be marching in the streets and we wouldn't have to be fighting tooth and nail just to live, just to literally have life. That's that on citizenship. And I think the other piece on like oppressive systems, oppressive systems are not new. Uh, The way they function, the way they operate are mostly the same. A lot of systems learn from each other. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning about what's going on with Palestine. What folks may not know or they may know is that the same police that are creating those oppression work together with United States police and they train each other. They learn from each other. And they use the same tactics on us here in America that they use there in Palestine. So borders are important and they're not. And I say this is a very proud Jamaican, right? Like I'm so Jamaican, it's not funny. And yet I understand that that construct of a border and of nationalism and of patriotism and all these different pieces can really be weaponized. Um, and be used to tear apart people's livelihoods and that all countries are not created equal. The power of the United States passport, the power of passports of the global North versus the global South, if that's still even a term in the 21st century, even that 
really tells you about the bias and what bought them that power. The fact that I cannot be able to travel as freely as I would like to unless you get some paperwork, a a flimsy card, a flimsy paper from a government that specializes in demolishing and destroying countries and shaping them up to how they want them to be. Like, that's just messed up. We have to understand how this thing was man-made and created with the idea of having some people have a lot and having many people have nothing so that those people can continue to feed their greed. Um, And it's really rooted in white supremacy in a way that is profound and beyond anything that we could discuss in five minutes. Well, luckily, we got a little bit longer, so we we got we got some time, but it is a lot for sure. Uh, Jenna said, "Anything you wanna you wanna add to that?" Yes, I think that is the way to go forward. Solidarity is fundamental, and as undocumented LGBTQ people, as undocumented trans women specifically, it is essential to stand in solidarity with other struggles, but also other people need to stand in solidarity with us, right? And how do we do that? By listening. I think listening to what people are going through, to the injustices that are happening in the United States, right? That they're supposed to be providing protections, but there's about human rights and all these beautiful things they talked about. But in reality, in the backyards, they're torturing people. So I think the solidarity is fundamental in the way that they are feeling it, how powerful it has become, not only in the U.S., through Black Lives Matter movement, through other issues that have been, especially during the Trump administration that mobilized so many people, the Muslim community, Asian people being under attack. So I think for us to come together collectively and and form those alliances. Something that Damon mentioned is justice and liberation. It's something that people have been asking for so many years, hundreds and hundreds of years, even through different civilization. And we have yet to see fully that justice, we have yet to see fully that liberation. In order to make that happen, we need to really, again, go back to the root causes of poverty. We need to go back to the root causes of what's causing gender violence, to why are people fighting for for land, for oil, for all these things, right? And it comes down to controlling through fear, to exploitation. People are not comfortable. People want significant change. And the moment you start giving opportunities to the voices, especially that have not been centered, voices that have not been heard, is when we really are going to break through and start seeing what so many people have fought hard, right? Our ancestors have been fighting and screaming for so long. As we continue to move forward and you know do the, the work, it's like, for me, it's, it's extremely important to understand what my role is. It's important to understand the history of where my people have been and to honor that, right? I, I think right now the visibility with the trans communities is really at the highest point, but also the, the murders are 
really, really, it's, it's an epidemic. It's really devastating. We're also seeing major anti-trans legislation around the nation in different states targeting the Jews that are trying to find their place in the world. And now they're being told they can be themselves, right? So again, solidarity is the key going to the voices of the people that are being heavily impacted by social injustices and decriminalization and dehumanization. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that historical framing, uh, Genesis. I think that really helps us go further in this discussion. And so, Patrice, I have a question for you, and it's about Black liberation. I feel really fortunate to come up in a lineage that is grounded in the Black queer feminist tradition uh, that was teaching that as the language of Black Lives Matter is emerging, we actually have a need to say that all Black lives matter because we see historically and contemporarily the ways in which women's leadership is either erased or overlooked or the marginalization of queer and trans uh, communities within the Black identity or within the Black experience. And so from that framework of centering marginalized experiences, uh, we've begun to learn more that immigration is a Black issue. But I feel like that understanding is limited and sometimes sparse. Um, and so I, I want to ask how we can, within the, the, the work of Black liberation movement, better center the experiences of undocumented Black folks, and particularly how do we name some of the unnamed or invisible privileges that Black U.S. citizens have, whether it's domestically or within the global diaspora. Uh, so how do we you know, address some of that privilege in the, the mission of making sure we are centering the experience of undocumented Black folks as we are working for liberation? Got it. So I'll give like a story. So you know, like if you drive, right, you know, driving while Black. So let's say you're driving while Black and you get pulled over, right? So many things can happen in that moment. When you're undocumented, there's just an addition to that, which is that you may never, ever go home to your family. It's the same discrimination, um, but then just a little bit more, the more layers that you add on. So if you have a really thick accent, uh, the police might think, OK, well, you are not from here. And so you get more scrutiny right away. If you are um, visibly LGBT or they think you might be then you face discrimination, you're misgendered, like then that's another layer on top of it. So it's just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And I think if we really think about it, we already know that, right? Because within the own Black population, undocumented or not, there's different layers. You know that, right? Like somebody who gets pulled over who has like a record is at more risk than somebody who isn't. Somebody who gets pulled over who's dark skin is at more risk than someone who isn't. Someone who gets pulled over and they're in a rich white neighborhood, is that more risk than, hmm, let me pause there actually, that doesn't always work that way. And it gets complicated. That but doesn't yeah, always but I work that way, but you follow my drift, you know what I mean? And so if you start from there, then it becomes a little easier to like peel back and to realize that this thing isn't so foreign. Now that's the grounding. Once we get there, then we figure out, okay, what exactly is being done to Black undocumented? So one, we're seen as a threat, right? So we're seen as a threat and undocumented people in general, foreignness in general is a threat if you're not white, especially in this country, right? And post 9-11, the laws that they put in place, the pieces that they put in place, ICE was created after 9-11. ICE was created in our lifetimes, right? 
And the way how that has been weaponized, the way how um, private companies have profited off of our bodies being detained and deported is just exorbitant. So one, we're seen as a threat and we're seen as a profit. And then when our stories are talked about, right, is not always in a frame of liberation, which is why I appreciate spaces like this where we get to tell our own, because otherwise it's like, oh, yeah, you should really care about undocumented Black people because, and the because is not they're human, full stop, because that's what I'd like. But it has to be an addition because we feed your children, because we till your farm, because we we take care of your homes, you know, and so we're so many things. We're a commodity, we're a threat, we're a profitable, like we're so many things other than being human. And I think for us at Andaki Black, we just want to be seen as human and having inherent worth and dignity. I want to build off what you were just saying, that profit positioning, both the profit potential of containment, but then also the profit potential of labor for the people enforcing these laws and these systems of white supremacy. You alluded to a couple of them, but but when I think about what types of labor are left out of large-scale labor organizing that's been kind of invited within the state. Um, you know, we, we know that land workers and food workers are uh, excluded, and we know that domestic workers are excluded. And those are two areas that are predominantly made up of undocumented workers. What types of labor and what issues in relation to labor are erased and exploited from the conversation because of anti-Blackness and in the case of, uh, I think, probably both of them, um, misogyny as well? Well, one, I'll say you mentioned those labor and they want to keep you there. So I myself for many years before the formation of Andaki Black, I served in domestic work. And it wasn't because I had no other choice, but it was because I had no other choice if you follow my drift. And so they would have preferred that I stay there. They would have preferred that I stayed there, that I stayed underground, that I stayed without making a voice heard, and that we stayed without forming a community like on Black, where together we could be strong, where together we could boost each other up, and together we could advocate for our rights. And so six years later, here we are. The pieces about labor were one that around domestic work in particular, the fact that like we are underpaid. You cannot access things like retirement. You cannot access health insurance for the most part. You cannot uh, talk if your employer is 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 abusing you because who you're gonna complain to? It's not just the police. Every type of social service is police. Everywhere that you're supposed to go for help that is um, attached to the state in any way, shape, or form is police and is policing and means that you put your life in jeopardy. So as long as that continues and as long as anti-Blackness permeates those institutions, whereas a Black person coming, you're seen as a threat, then you're at risk. And then you're just like caught in a really, really hard place. Genesis, to that same question around what types of labor are, are erased as, as a result of misogyny, and I'd add homophobia, transphobia, uh, other things of that nature. Before getting into that, I think it's important to mention that my worth shouldn't be defined by capitalist standards, right? Meaning if I'm able-bodied because of the discrimination, because of the transphobia and the homophobia that this system upholds through different um, oppressive ideologies, right? It's that if you 
you can do this type of labor, you know, farm work, you can do service, you can do housekeeping, different places, right? Which is what dominates the conversation, but you start challenging that and moving in a different labor piece, like for example, to go into like law or business or something like that. It's like not expected, right? Of people of color in this country. We have to understand that this country was built on exploitation. And as we continue to move forward, it it will continue to exploit people based on their gender, based on their sex, based on their immigration status, right? So um, specifically trans women, like if you're having labor conversations and you don't center Black sex workers, you're doing a disservice because they're facing so much. Sometimes they wish they had opportunities to even enter these sectors of labor that I've seen as, you know, People are treated fairly and things like that. But sometimes trans folks, gender nonconforming, don't even get to that point, right? We can't even have discussions about equal pay when we don't have a secure job. So there's a lot of gaps that are missing in this conversation. Personally, I remember when I came to this country, didn't have documentation. I was, you know, started doing different um, jobs, right, throughout the time that I was adjusting to the change. And one time I went to this office and the guy that was hiring people, he's like, this is the script. I just need you to read it and do eight hours a day. But I want to be very clear. First, I have to make sure that I'm getting enough money to take care of my family and and, and things like that. And if there's any money left, then you, you will get paid. You know what I mean? And with my very limited English that I knew at the time, I knew that his intentions were not good. So imagine the magnitude that is happening now as 11 million undocumented people are part of this country. They're contributing in some way, right? And, you know, the the unfairness that exists in accessing certain types of jobs. But again, I think the trans community we have seen through organizing how they are really challenging, right, through uh, the decriminalization of sex work and sex work is work that sometimes it's even uncomfortable to think about that because they're like already attacking your humanity and no, you just want to be doing that for this or the reasons or whatever. But when you start listening to them, it's just like many don't have any other choice, right? And that's the only options that they have. So it's, it's again, so much work that needs to be done. And the end goal should not be what is it that you can contribute? What is the work that you can give? It's like you are here, you're a human being and you have every right to exist, whether you produce labor or not. People need to be treated with dignity and respect. Mm. You know, what I'm really receiving is this framing of the power dynamics, right? And and how these oppressive systems uh, are exploiting and creating this inequity. Uh, but then also, you know, we're hearing the, the the seeds and the sparks of this resilience and this survival and, and this organizing work. And that's really where I want to ground to, to go a little bit deeper in the learning is in the work. So I want to bring in Undocuback and Familia and what's going on right now to kind of help frame or ground this conversation. And before we get into just like, what are the campaigns and the efforts that, that are under work, the framing I, I want to 
author is how do we use this work as like a landscape for transformative learning? Because I believe that it is in the struggles for liberation that humanity is expanded and transformed. And the struggle is the best classroom, to be honest, uh, from, from my perspective. And so I'm curious for both of you, uh, whether it's in the work around DACA right now or the in-trans detention campaign, what are you learning right now from these efforts? What transformation are you observing? As you also share some of the, you know, the basic information that people need to know to be able to support these campaigns or other efforts. Yeah. Um, the entrance attention campaign, it's something Familia has led over the last seven years in collaboration with other national groups, with local groups. And part of the demand is to release trans people from detention, uh, people living with HIV, and eventually end all detention. So the campaign is connected to the broader demand of ending abuses in immigration detention centers across the country to ending the abuses that trans folks or LGBTQ people face in prisons, right? So the work that we've done over the years has been through uh, base building, really going to places where our people are and bringing people together, doing a weekend retreat, a few days, making sure that the goal of Familia Transqueer Liberation Movement is to, you know, organize, advocate, and educate for our people, right, especially Latinx folks. And how do we go into ending all of these injustices? And it's, it's not easy, but I think by centering the voices, I think by forming alliances with other groups and also for us as the Latinx community, understanding those connections with like oppression through anti-Blackness. If we look at the border in U.S.-Mexico, there's a lot of like Haitian uh, Black migrants who are still waiting for years and are the ones that are being deported the most, are, are the ones that aren't given you know, asylum cases. So I think the entrance detention campaign is, is a very strong campaign to say that if we can achieve to entrance detention, we can move into the broader demand of ending all deportations for all people. As we speak, we're having people coming. I know we're in the middle of a pandemic or moving in a direction that many things have been lifted. We've been very cautious to bring leaders from across the country to strategize and see what is the next step of the campaign. How are we going to move forward? And also listening to them and let them shape the strategy, let them shape the solutions that we need to have. It's continuous and hopefully as we move into Prime Month, we can be very clear in what the campaign is about and what is it that we need to do to achieve the demand and be able to end detention once and for all. So just a little bit of a, uh, a follow-up to that. For you personally, or maybe, you know, with your like internal squad, are there particular learnings or challenges that are um, helping you grow in your consciousness or in your leadership, or even in your understanding of these systems that we are resisting and, and working to transform? Yeah, every time you share space, you share a conversation, with anyone else that you are building, that you are organizing, you always learned and bring something valuable to your work, 
right? You, you bring something valuable through organizing. And for me, it's been very empowering to see how in, in a short time we have been able to achieve wins through different campaigns that we have launched nationally or people that were detained that challenge the narrative of the good versus bad immigrant. Meaning like if you have a clean record, if you don't have any arrests, if you have been working, if you have been paying your taxes, like you are given a priority, but for the organization, it doesn't matter if you have a record or not, like we're fighting for all of us. So the campaign has been going for over the last seven years and just to see the visibility of trans immigrant leadership, especially undocumented trans women, mobilizing and really speaking their truth. It's been very rewarding for me. And I'm also learning something, right? Like now that we are talking about immigration, what other issues are you dealing with? What is the next move beyond the entrance detention campaign? Paying attention to what's happening in the world, what's happening in Colombia, what's happening in Palestine, what's happening at the state level here with the uh, trans youth and these conservative Republicans. So as we continue to grow and organize, it's like, how do we plug more people in? How do we support and uplift the leadership? to be able to truly transform lives, right? And in that transformation is personal because you are seeing how a life is being saved rather than being murdered, right? Because we have faced with trans death for so long and it is time that we are giving a chance that we're giving opportunities to be able to exist unapologetically and to thrive and be able to have uh, fulfilling lives. Thank you for that. And so, Patrice, a similar question um, for you, you know, in Undocu Black, what is the work right now and how is it moving you? Are there particular lessons or transformative experiences that you are participating or observing, uh, whether that be um, in your work around DACA or other issues that, that center undocumented Black folks? I'll start on DACA. So we just launched a video that is available on all of our platforms at OnDocuBlack, U-N-D-O-C-U-B-L-A-C-K, that we paired up with the Heart of Hearing Committee, a deaf and hard of hearing community to do that video. And the point of it is to really let folks know that all qualifying Black immigrants of all backgrounds are eligible for DACA. Folks should be aware of that, and we should take advantage of that because there's a lot of bad and there is some good. Now, we know that with DACA, you may not be eligible depending on run-ins you may have had with the police and what that may have led to. And at the same time, there is leniency for some of that. Having DACA will allow folks to have a fast track if and when, and I'm going to do a strong on the when, we pass legalization citizenship for all. And that's a really important thing. So I want my people to have a leg up. I want my people to be able to get into the jobs that they want, get that health insurance, get advanced parole and go travel, go see your grandma that you haven't seen in however long of a time, go 
have that freedom, just a little taste of it that we've been robbed of for so very long. And I want all of us as Black folks to be able to get that. One of the things that we're working at on Daki Black is to make sure that it's accessible for everyone, that we are organizing hard as the Black community. The statistics show that there are a few Black people with DACA, but not enough, and not nearly enough of the people who are actually eligible for it. And that's because of organizing, right? So we weren't around in 2012. We weren't even around in 2015. But 2016 and onward, we're doing our part. And now that DACA is back, we're making sure that people are fully aware of what is eligible for them. The second piece is like, you know, we want to win. We want to win big, right? Like who doesn't want to win? But what's really important too is how you win and the care that comes after that win. So for instance, we've talked a lot and we're pushing about the Liberian green card bill that we helped to get passed with the Liberian community and organizers all across this country towards the end of 2019. And that's a win. That's huge. But almost two years since, and we have fought for an extension. So people have until December to apply. Enough people haven't applied. And USCIS, uh, the citizenship agency that processes the green cards, they have created obstacle after obstacle after obstacle so that people cannot submit their applications. And so it's not just good enough for us to say, we got a policy win, organizing works, advocacy. We're going beyond that. And so we are continuing to partner with the Liberian organizers to make sure that people know that they should apply and that we are demanding that USCIS reverse these Trump policies that have no business being there. So we can get all our people what's due to them because I want my people to be able to be free. Just interject real quick in hearing those answers about the work. One, just like I believe, right? <laughs> like I believe that we will win. Um, and for folks watching or for folks who maybe will, will get this audio later, um, just in your faces, I just saw like a brightening up and, a, and an excitement and a passion um, and a joy that you have in this work. So there's just like something I want to name or kind of be a proxy for the audience right now before we keep going of just in hearing y'all talk about the work. Um, there is one just a, a level of faith that I have in, our, in people, our people in the largest sense of the word, and y'all are doing it. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna toss it to, to the homie, but I am feeling the joy and I'm feeling the courage when, when y'all talk about your work and I'm, I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. And my question actually is directly related to that. You know, the topic for the event was undocumented and unafraid. Um, and I wanna talk about that unafraid idea for a second and shout out to the person watching at home who threw this in the chat. But, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot on the show and just Damon and I about this distinction between bravery and courage and bravery. One definition being doing something that you're afraid to do, but doing it anyway. And courage is when that thing is no longer something that gives you fear. Um, and, and I think in that courage, there's room for joy and celebration of process and some of that transformation in a different way. So I'm, I'm curious for y'all, how has your relationship both personally uh, and in the movement work to to fear changed in, in the years that you've been doing this work? Um, and is there anything that started out feeling brave that now is feeling pretty courageous? Yeah, I think for the trans community, as, again, as we become more visible nationally in the U.S., like we're not new. Like trans people have existed for centuries, right? Even before colonization, 
came to this part of the world. Like there were a variation of gender expression that existed in indigenous lands here and, and throughout, right, the world. So going out the door can be your death sentence or sometimes not even going out the door. Sometimes in your home, you can get murder, right? And then when you see the visibility of trans people in different spaces and then you do something courageous, it's like, wow, she's brave or they're brave and they're courageous. But again, the end goal is to let people be themselves, to let them exist as they are unapologetically. So as I continue to speak my truth, I'm also learning new revelations, right? I'm also learning secrets in, in, in my own inner personal circle with loved ones. And I think the more we are able to be ourselves, whether you are trans or however identity you embrace, sexuality, those words shouldn't have the heavy lift that they have now. You know, thinking about trans immigrant women specifically, all the challenges that we have to face, you know, sometimes crossing two, three borders. Some of them are still in the process of figuring their identities, right? And to just embark in that dangerous journey to come to the U.S., I think it's important to honor the life and legacy. I couldn't do justice to the work or the campaign if I don't honor the life of Victoria Arellano, who died in ICE custody in 2007. She was living with HIV. Roxana Hernandez, 33, living with HIV, who also died in ICE custody in 2018. And, you know, Joanna Medina, on June 1st, 2019, she died of similar circumstances, right? So people living with HIV with all the advances that we have now, it's not a death sentence. But when they were in custody, they'd lose their lives. And so many other people have lost their lives in ICE custody. So if we look at their journeys and lives, you can see how much dreams and goals they have and how brave and courageous they were to exist as, as they were able to fight for their existence. So I want to challenge people to really, as you figure out who you are, and as you see trans people, I like see that we are more than just our identity. We are more than just our sexuality, that we have so much to offer and we can make a really significant difference that can benefit all of us, right? If you put aside your, your prejudice that you've been fed, whether through different uh, spaces or, or however you get the information, we can break away from those and see that we are in our full right to exist as human people. Yeah, I'll go. Um, I think that we can't talk about being courageous, I suppose, without being brave. And you can't talk about being courageous without talking about justice, right? So by your definition, I'm working with it, trying to learn. Um, so <laughs> if being brave is doing something that you're afraid of, right, then let's say five years ago, a lot of us and a lot of us in UndocuBot coming out and telling anyone we were undocumented, where we were from, what status we had, we were brave for doing that. Now, within our spaces, it's not a source of the fear anymore. 
But that's because there is some promise of justice. And not because Joe Biden said so, but because we create the pathway, we are changing the systems to make it for ourselves. And we also create safe spaces for ourselves. That's justice. Justice is having more than enough that we need to sustain ourselves and not having to worry about resources. And we have created that justice for ourselves. In the past year with the COVID-19 pandemic, as we lost our jobs or family members lost their jobs, as people were not able to move freely even less than we could have before, Undocky Black banded together and we put our money where our mouth is, our own selves, right? And then other community members as well, because we weren't going to get that government check. We still haven't gotten it, right? And so we were able to feed ourselves, to pay our own rent, to be able to continue to get access to resources. We figured out where are the free clinics that will give the COVID test, that we can get COVID vaccines, that we can get what we need for our families. And in those types of spaces where we now feel safe because justice is being served there, then that meant that we could be courageous because it's not a source of fear anymore because you're going to get what is due to you, right? And so that's, for me, being undocumented and being unafraid means having a safe space to do that in and having justice promised to me and created for me along the way. And that's been really, really helpful. I'm like swimming in the hope where I want to end because unfortunately I can have this conversation for like 15 hours. We could just do this all day. Uh, but one last kind of question or framing for both of y'all to, to close with, and it's under one of the you know themes of this event or conversation of freedom dreams. And so, you know, Robin Kelly's Freedom Dreams talks about this history of visioning or projecting a world beyond what is often currently possible um, as a guidepost of the work, but more importantly, as a way to sustain our humanity. And so I want to hear or close with, uh, relative to, to these issues and systems we've been talking about, what are your freedom dreams? And particularly, I think we, we are clear of how the U.S. nation state, through this notion of citizenship, border, and immigration, affirms settler colonialism, white supremacy, and state violence in relationship to people. But I think it's also important that we include how this system also destroys the land. Um, and so in talking about your freedom dreams, I want to also make sure we're talking about the relationship between people and also the healing work that the land requires as we are building our liberatory futures. So that's a long way to say, what are your freedom dreams for this place? given all that we are struggling against. Man, I feel like we need like a chant or something. We do, we um, do. <laughs> you know, my background is in theater. So that is totally my my practice, my way to go. Sometimes it's easier to sing and to chant than it is to talk um, and to talk in Patois, which is, um, I'm Jamaican, so to do that, that's freedom. If I had my way, I actually had this conversation with someone the other day who was in on Black and connected with folks uh, that I realized have like a musical background or a theater background, you know? I was like, if we had our way, what would we be doing right now? What work would give us joy? And I know for me, 
I'd go into musical theater. I'd be on Broadway. And that's not to say I don't love what I do. I love my job. I love on Docky Black. I love organizing. I love being in community, right? But if we were truly, truly unbothered, what would we do? And how would we turn that into a liberatory practice, right? How would we use that to tell the stories of the land and to tell the stories of the land that we come from and the land that we've come to inhabit and the stories that we've learned from the people who used to inhabit this land who were pushed out, talking about being indigenous as Black people. Black people are indigenous. No matter where they're from, they're indigenous, right? When we talk about people who are Native Americans were indigenous to this land and the oppression that was tried out on them and then tried out on black people and tried out on the enslaved and tried out on immigrants now and tried out on trans folks and then goes down the line, down the line and then is tried out with all levels and just multiplies oppression. I want to be able to tell that story, but tell the story not because it is helping me to fight for my freedom because I'm already free reminding future generations to not replicate the mistakes of the people before. That's my freedom dream, that I could do that, record that, and then go home in Jamaica and go chill on a beach, right? That I can then bring those stories and those lessons learned to my father and enjoy my parents that I have missed and have not been with for over a decade. And I want to enjoy them before they die. I want to have children and I want to not worry about the fact that if I go pick up my child from school, I might not be able to go back home because, oh, I'm driving undocumented. I want to be free and I want our people to have that too. I want us to have small joys and big joys and everything in between and to have a land and a home and peace and freedom to travel, to be, to love. That's my dream. That's our collective dream. And I believe that we can't get there unless we band together because that's what liberation looks like. It's collective freedom. And it's really, really important that we band together and that we not repeat the patterns of our oppressors. So that means coming to understand what is internalized oppression. That means coming to understand homophobia. That means coming to understand anti-Black racism and that it's beyond just a term, but it becomes a practice so that we can really, 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 really be free. And I can get my dream of living on Broadway. Broadway and the beach. That's mm-hmm. the perfect spots. That's great. Uh, Jenna said, uh, how about for you in, in regard to land or just in general? What is this freedom dream for you? I think I have a tremendous responsibility of the visionary works of so many freedom fighters, right? That created a vision for a better world, a better treatment of people and to honor the humanity, right? Of people who have faced so many injustices, so many abuses, and have been murdered. I think that responsibility gives me going into my own division of what the work that I'm doing has taught me, has grounded me. As Patrice was sharing her vision, like I was thinking about my own childhood, right? My mom, I grew up in a single home environment, very traditional. We grew up Catholic. So the idea of having a transgender child was completely like, oh my God, that's not possible. 
But, you know, now as I'm living and my truth, my mom tells me stories of my childhood. I also vision myself as a choreographer, right? That I wanted to, to dance. I wanted to be on a stage. I wanted to entertain. I wanted to help people find their joy through art. And I think in some way, organizing is giving me the stage to be able to to save lives and transform lives. I never saw myself as an organizer. I never saw myself that I was going to be, you know, connecting nationally and having an impact in the community. But obviously the reality is way different. The obstacles and the challenges that trans people face makes it very difficult to have those visions become a reality, maybe in our lifetimes. But the work that we do is, again, what the previous generation of freedom fighters did. I'm able to have these conversations. I'm able to exist. So the vision that I see myself is that we accomplish what we are fighting for with the entrance detention campaign, that we release trans people in detention throughout the country, that we release people living with HIV, that we shut down eyes, that we shut down all the detention centers and use those buildings, give them to the community that are in need and transform them and show you what really a truly holistic society is about, right? That we shut down borders, that we stop killing each other because of the land, because of oil, that there's so much resources that the earth is given us that we can sustain a brighter future for the generations to come is that we have that vision and that as trans people exist, you honor how sacred we are and you recognize the healing that we bring into their fear and into the injustices you put upon us. Thank you. Oh, so beautiful. Both of you. Mm. Thank you. Um, and I just I look forward to moderating the talk back after the play uh, that Genesis does the choreography for uh, and that Patrice, you, you, you direct and, and are the, the star of. That's going to be a great talk. And this has been so wonderful. Dame, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Yeah, this is just so moving and just another I, I keep using the words fortunate and privilege and honor uh, because that's what I feel. Because in this conversation, I am reaffirmed in the feeling that a new world is possible. And as we discuss the ways that this nation state formation around the globe is expanding racial capitalism, cishet, patriarchy, and carceral militarism, we have to create new structures to govern the relationships between human beings and how we exist on this planet and with these resources. And so just hearing your story um, and, and seeing your spirit and learning more about your work uh, makes me feel more confident in naming that and pushing us towards that new possibility. So I just am so grateful. Thank you so much. And we need to continue dreaming about freedom uh, because that's how we make it real. Thank you both so much. Uh, thank you to Allied Media Projects for having us. Uh, make sure that you follow the work of the Black Network as well as uh, Familia. Um, you can follow Ergo, A-A-R-G-O, on all your podcast apps and at Ergo Radio everywhere. Any plugs or any other info that you want to make sure gets included, we'll also have it all in the in the show notes as well. For me, continue to show up. Don't just be an ally, be an accomplice. Um, if you are listening to this and you are Black and undocumented, consider making Black your political home. We can use more people. We know there are more of us out there and we need to be combined together. And uh, to all of the colleagues, Genesis, who has been in this fight, uh, from day one and many others um, like 
you, I just say, I believe that we will win. And I believe in that freedom. And I believe it's coming. <laughs> and I'm crying on a podcast. <laughs> That's what we're here for. What we're here for. Tears are okay. Tears happen a lot in our spaces. It's a release. It's a release. So just so grateful. Go follow Undocu Black. U-N-D-O-C-U-B-L-A-C-K. Go give to our COVID fund. Go show up at our protests and at our events and fight with us. Um, we need to change the laws that exist around immigration in this country and we need access to the resources that will make us whole. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Full of gratitude and appreciation for this conversation to Ally Media Conference and everyone you know behind the scenes, the team that brought us together. Thank you so much. If people are interested, they can follow our work on all social media. It's Familia TQLM and follow hashtag and trans detention. Thank you very much. Beautiful. And we'll be back continuing to talk with the people transforming and reshaping our world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.